Good afternoon. Here we are for Stuff Things in the News. We have a large program today. We're going to be talking with Noah Ann, who's the vice president of the Young Democrats. Um, and we're going to be talking about first the Paris attacks, which just happened a few days ago. And and then we're going to be talking about the Democratic, followed by a little bit about the Republican debates. Hi, Noah. How's your day? I'm doing good. How about you, Timmy? Pretty good. Um, so, so we're going to open with the Paris bombings because they're absolutely tragic and we're going to play a little around with the political implications of it but for those of you who live under rocks um we recently paris was attacked by a large-scale terrorist terrorist attack on several venues uh, firstly the the french national football stadium soccer stadium the stade de denis and um the very famous concert venue where there was a show going on at the time now the the first thing that I thought of when when I heard about the news, I was like, please, dear God, don't make them, don't let them be Muslims, because there's there's one thing that's very important to understand. ISIL and ISIS and, and Islamic extremists are very, they are not a representation of the Islam faith. They're not a representation of any faith. Uh, it's, it's this very, very extreme group that can be characterized and perhaps compared with similar groups in Christianity like the KKK or every sort of religion has these extreme religious roots or groups and we we cannot under any circumstances characterize the the entire religion by this one group it's it's imperative not to because we cannot we cannot look at the refugees who are coming who are predominantly muslim we can't discriminate against them just because of one ex- extremist attack. And we're very proud here in Washington that our that our state has not discriminated and they will continue accepting refugees from Syria. But anyway, moving on. Um, so these attacks, they they are on Paris for any for a specific reason or Noah? Um, I think it's, uh, you know, obviously it's a major European country um, that I think, uh, from what I've heard, ISIS felt that they had more access to it um, than, you know, obviously something like the United States, which is, you know, you have the Atlantic Ocean in between them. Um, But it is just um, a country that's honestly not too far away from, you know, where kind of ISIS is centered. And, And it's a very notable country. It's a country that a lot of people, or a city that a lot of people feel connection to you know i know that i had a lot of um friends and family who have you know visited paris and feel you know the, the way some people feel with hawaii um some sort of connection to it just because you know they've traveled there so many times and they felt like this could be me um and i think that attacking paris as we saw has a much bigger shock effect on um most of the world than attacking a country like beirut yeah, and this is uh, Paris is seen by most people actually as one of the hallmarks of Western society. It's this giant cultural beacon, and the places they attacked the Bataclan concert hall and the National Soccer Stadium, um, especially during the France-friendly international football match, um, they they they're giant hallmarks to this Western ideal, which is why they were targeted. It's it's as if someone it attacking Paris is on the same level as attacking Washington, D.C. Uh, in as a attack against democracy, uh, which is why Paris finds itself under so many attacks. And we have to keep in mind that France also has this very large Muslim population. So some people within ISIS might find recruiting in these giant urban areas easier because while it is an extremist group, you are going to find that uh, some more extreme – it's easier to find more extreme Muslims when there is a larger population to sort of go through to figure out. Yeah, and I think that uh, part of the attack itself was, you know, like you said, trying to get the uh, Muslim population in France to potentially feel more alienated and you know be more susceptible to ISIS recruiting, right? We saw after the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris – um, the huge swell of Islamophobia in France and attacks on mosques. And uh, they thought they could do something similar with this, which could work to their benefit. Yeah. Um, and, and we notice in some of these Western European countries, especially, that uh, they aren't exactly pro, uh, they are in no way pro-Islam, uh, actually. Switzerland recently, uh, Switzerland has this for for reference, Switzerland has this complete democracy. So there are people that are referring legislation to the people, but they have this um, 
they have this system where they where the people vote on very a very large amount of these laws. So it's it's as close to a complete democracy as Athens once was, what we all learned in school. Um, but the the idea is Switzerland recently outlawed the construction of mosques, minarets, towers um, in Switzerland because they they thought there were too many. They didn't want to demonstrate this racial um, or this religious uh, sort of ideal in a in a very predominantly protestant and catholic country um so so we we do find that a lot of these religious groups are marginalized in europe um in the 90s as well you had the uh, balkan wars uh, where the mass killings were uh, muslims as as well as ethnic uh, bosniaks so um we find that france might not be the most religious friendly place but they still have this very large muslim population which is why an attack on paris would would resonate within the international islam islamic community um so the next thing we have to consider is how this affects the current refugee crisis um we we for the last several months we've had sort of a issue in Europe with these large amount of refugees and European countries not taking them in. Do you think this will scare them from taking countries, uh, countries taking more refugees in? Well, it's certainly scaring a lot of Americans. So, I mean, I would imagine that we're going to see similar backlash in Europe. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we, I think it's right now that seven governors have already uh, made it, made it far more difficult for immigrants, uh, refugees to come into, uh, I'm not sure who they are off the top of my head, but it, it's, it's seven governors have already just, just a couple days after the Paris attacks, um, made it impossible, very difficult for refugees to come through to their state. And it's, it's reflected in, it's been reflected in, um, various central European states, the ones that the Syrian refugees are going through to that. These countries aren't necessarily pro Immigration pro refugee. Hungary closed its borders to um, Serbia, and Ser- Serbia, uh, for reference, isn't part of the EU. Isn't part of the Schengen states, which removes border controls. So the refugees went through Croatia, and it was very, very difficult for the Croatian government, who wanted to allow these refugees to pass through, who who had no problems with the refugees passing through, but it was still very difficult. Um, for them to let them because there are so many hallmarks of the uh, civil war there was uh, some 25 years ago there are mines in the fields and generally these refugees wouldn't travel along well-established roads they would sort of go through the fields it would be extremely dangerous if if these countries were not allowing them to go through so while there are huge refugee camps in these various um these various countries we're seeing sort of institutional problems with how they're handled um especially here in the united states as well now this has played into our um our current presidential race because hillary clinton was the secretary of state to to our current president barack obama for a while and um she's obviously currently running for the democratic uh, nomination is there anything we should be concerned about with that um well i think it's you know you're going to see herself um she's going to start to uh, well, she's in a situation where she has been running a campaign where she's kind of aligning herself with Obama. Um, she is, you know, appealing to a large part or the majority of the Democratic base by saying, I was his secretary of state. I stood up to serve when, you know, he asked me after we were opponents. Um, and, you know, just on Saturday night in the debate, she brought up when she was talking about a crisis that, um, you know, she's dealt with. She talked about making the call with President Obama in the Situation Room to go after Osama bin Laden. Um, and so she has clearly aligned herself with the president, but this is an instance, you know, where she had major foreign policy differences with the president. And it's going to be really interesting to see how she approaches that moving forward in the campaign. If she, you know, embraces this difference and, and, you know, it's something that could very well benefit her in the general election, I believe, because, you know, I don't think that, you know, a large, a large portion of the American public doesn't seem too confident right now in the president's handling of the situation. Um, but in the primary, she's going to have to find a way to, um, I guess, embrace those differences while not alienating Democrats who are not very, uh, um, who are kind of war wary right now and uh, don't really want to s- 
to see us get more engaged. Yeah, uh, Hillary Clinton has has been brought up in uh, it's it's been brought up, up up about her that she voted for the war in Iraq several uh, under George Bush when she was a senator for uh, New York State, and it's it's one of these destabilizing uh, destabilizing wars for the region that have perhaps caused these sorts. The Middle East is fairly it's not very stable democratically, but George Bush's plan way back when was to install a democratic state to install a democratic state which it policy has sort of dictated that or research has dictated that a democratic state will slowly turn the states around it democratic as well and a democratic state is is going to be more friendly more amenable to to the rights of the people and to theoretically the united states as well so uh, it was in george w bush's interest to create a sort of democratic state in iraq which um, failed spectacularly is the correct. Yeah. Um, so when when George W. Bush was creating this sort of democratic state and trying to create this democratic state, he obviously alienated some of the people that are currently now this Islamic state of uh, Iraq and uh, Levant uh, is is one of those offshoots of one of those um, collateral sort of parts of George Bush's policy of state making. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's true that if we hadn't seen, uh, and this is probably the approach that Bernie Sanders would take to it to try to, you know, um, you know, paint Hillary as, you know, the warmongering, you know, uh, elite, <laughs> um, you know, if we hadn't gotten involved in Iraq, you know, back in, uh, the early two thousands, we probably wouldn't see, you know, the, uh, destabilization of the area. And we probably wouldn't see, um, threats like ISIS arrive. And I think what Hillary Clinton wants to say is that that's true. And, you know, she has said that she's made that mistake. However, <clears throat> if you go later on, while she was Secretary of State, when she, you know, probably had, or she did have more influence in our foreign policy, um, she disagreed with the president about our approach to the Syrian civil war before the threat of ISIS was really, you know, realized. Um, she believed that we should have uh, taken a more interventionist approach, and she thinks that we should have started um, using our air power to, uh, you know, bomb Syria and ground their um, air force earlier on. And, you know, when the president came out and backed off of his, you know, red line threat um, a few years back, um, uh, she wrote that op-ed that said, you know, this was a mistake, and it's going to create power vacuums that are going to be filled by people we don't want to fill them. Of course, at the time, no one had the idea that it was going to become such a big threat. But yeah, ISIL right now controls vast, vast proportion uh, portions of the Middle East, and, and obviously Syria is included, and giant parts of Iraq. They 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 control parts of the area around Mosul, um, which is Iraq's second biggest city, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so the, we can always uh, already see that this is a very extreme arm uh, that's trying to form this Islamic caliphate, as was in the 800s and 900s. Um, AD, so 800 mm -hmm. AD. <laughs> this is a very long time ago. Um, but the problem is, would an airstrike, sir, uh, would an airstrike quell this relationship would would an airstrike quell what's going on right now enough or would it just infuriate them more yeah i mean i think the situation is a lot more complicated now than it was you know a few years ago and so you know like i was saying hillary clinton could take that approach of saying we should have you know president obama made this mistake that we should have uh intervened before isis filled those power vacuums and you know became kind of a uh, big supporter of the opposition to, you know, Bashar al-Assad's regime in Syria. Um, now that we have missed that opportunity, uh, I mean, the situation becomes a lot more complicated. And, you know, you have President Obama who's saying that he doesn't want um, uh, to get more involved in Syria, that he doesn't think that more military engagement is the option. Um, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see um, how Secretary Clinton, you know, where she... I, I haven't heard too much of her um, getting specific about what she thinks the path forward should be. Um, but, uh, you know, she did disagree with the president that ISIS is not contained, and she does see seem to see it as more of a threat to the United States than he does. Um, so...
At, at what point do we sort of look at um, this this sort of ISIL and and draw comparisons to Iraq after George H W Bush George one? Um, what do we? At what point do we say, listen, people thought George H W Bush should have just marched into Baghdad at that point when he was already surrounding the city and stormed it uh, as as they might have thousands of years ago um but he didn't and which caused this prolonged war which is why george w bush had to go in again and then they realized what happens when you storm baghdad you get these years and years and years of spending money troops lives in this far off place at what point do we start drawing parallels with what hillary is saying and saying we need more military involvement versus what people were saying about george hw bush when he pulled back and uh, as we saw later um learned that he might have made the right decision yeah, well, I mean, I think it's a very similar situation, right? You had the president um, pull troops out of Iraq uh, without a, um, uh, a forces agreement, um, you know, to keep that American presence there. And, you know, Republicans now are telling him that that was the big mistake that caused this, that, you know, pulling out allowed Iraq to destabilize and collapse, which obviously gave rise to the Islamic State. Um, and, yeah, it, it, his argument would be, uh, just like you were saying, that, you know, we were already engaged in this long and lengthy and very costly um, conflict in the region and that it didn't make sense to continue that. Now, from my perspective, I think you can say that I don't know that that was the right decision because we're now re-engaged um, and we're probably going to be more engaged than we were before um, he pulled the troops out uh, because he pulled the troops out in part. Um, and, um, you know, that backing off appears now to be leading us to have to uh, involve ourselves more than we ever really intended on could, being involved. Could we argue an isolationist approach? There's a few candidates on the on the Republican side and a few on the one on the one on the Republican side, one on the Democratic side that are that are arguing this sort of isolationist approach of, you know, we're not really going to achieve stability in the Middle East, especially with the involvement of our armed forces. And if we if we don't bomb carpet bomb them every decade or so, they might not hate us so much. Oh, I think that's absolutely an argument. Um, and I think if you were to go back 30 years, that's probably what we should have been doing. Um, but I think at this point, uh, they do hate us. Um, at least, you know, ISIS um, does obviously hate us. Um, and uh, I don't think that completely pulling ourselves out of the region and taking an isolation approach, approach now, now that we're already in there, now that we've already destabilized the region, now that we already have, you know, American interests in the region, it's kind of too late for that approach, if you ask me. Um, and... While I definitely agree with the sentiment that this conflict is in large part because we uh, attacked them, because, you know, we um, angered them, uh, at this point, I really think it's too late to say, well, if we pull out now, they will, they'll like us again. Yeah. Um, just let's be absolutely clear. Um, this this sort of... Um Islamic uprising in in the Middle East isn't is is more or less is it isn't isolated in the Middle East, but in this particularly not stable region just north uh, west of Saudi Arabia. Um, but it is like we we have seen peaceful uprisings against the the more oppressive um, dictators of such countries. We we saw the uh, Democratic National uh, the Democratic conversation in tunisia they recently won the uh, nobel peace prize for how they handled uh, the arab spring and how they managed to transition into this peaceful democracy when so many other countries had failed when egypt had more or less failed to transition into a peaceful democracy they trans transitioned into this secular state i'm gonna draw one more parallel uh, what about how is russia going to get involved with this because isil while it attacked paris it also claimed it, it attacked paris to the tune of i think it's 140 deaths right now i'm not and 400 something people are injured 77 are seriously injured those are the stats I pulled up earlier today. Um, but Rus Russia had their plane, mostly of Russian citizens, bombed off the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt to Russia. And they are arguing for increased involvement, and they're arguing that Obama is perhaps supporting religious extremists in Syria as well. Well, yeah, uh, Russia, you know, has gotten involved. But the United States' criticism of Russia's involvement is that they're really not uh, fighting ISIS. ISIS, you know, they're... Uh, mission against ISIS is just 
a front for um, defending one of their only allies in the Middle East and Bashar al-Assad, um, you know, the president of Syria. Um, and I think that if we really want to get serious about fighting ISIS, if we want um, to be effective against ISIS, the international community has to come together, you know, like it's, you know, you could argue like it's intended to do. Um, and the United States and Russia and, you know, the other countries involved need to agree one way or the other about what we're going to do with leadership in Syria, how we're going to form a transitional government. Um, and that most likely is going to have to mean removing uh, Bashar al-Assad. And uh, I don't think if we can't agree on the direction that Syria is moving in after we defeat ISIS, I really don't know how we're going to defeat ISIS um, because you're going to get that United States American conflict or American Russian conflict where this is, you know, kind of going down the road of becoming a uh, proxy fight um, where the Russia is really just fighting on behalf of the, the, the Syrian regime and the Americans while fighting ISIS are also trying to uh, uh, give the rebels, the moderate rebels in, in Syria, um, a better chance against Assad's army. And, and, is it so? For reference, um, Syria is currently going in between three groups: it's uh, the president's uh, al-Assad, um, ISIL, and uh, ISIL or ISIS, um, and and these rebels that are against uh, Assad. These rebels are protesting against more or less civil rights protests, correct? So America is involving itself, trying to put these rebels in power, but Russia is also accusing them of um, har- harboring these religious extremists, while Russia is trying to prop up a dictator that isn't a religious extremist but is still not a very nice guy um is it possible for the u.s to go into syria and coordinate with uh, vladimir putin and say listen we are going to defeat isis together and you can so- is there a middle ground the russians want al-assad the americans want not al-assad or not isil is there someone that we can prop up or that the russians can prop up or no one can prop up and everyone has a democracy and everyone lives happily ever after that would be a middle ground for this uh i really don't know and i don't think that many people do know and i think that that's what we're going to have to find out in the coming months and i think that uh you know the paris attack has changed the conversation on syria and it is most likely going to uh lead to more you know conversations between american leadership and russian leadership we saw just this week at the g20 summit um you know, President Obama and President Putin of Russia, uh, you know, talking, which doesn't always happen. Uh, and I think that we should all really be hoping that they can find that middle ground, that they can find a plan forward, because like I said, if they can't, uh, you know, I don't know what we're going to do. Um, but I think that part of what's missing here is, you know, the intelligence on the ground that we should have been uh, establishing, um, you know, in, in the long term about who are the emerging moderate leaders in these countries so that when a situation like this arises, we know who to turn to, who in Syria, uh, you know, can, could be that moderate leader that we find that replaces a, an oppressive regime, but is not a religious extremist. We don't have that intelligence. We haven't been, you know, doing, I guess, the due diligence in, um, making sure that we understand the situation on the ground for when events like this arise. Um, I, I'd like to point something out. Uh, France, uh, one of the events that was bombed during the um, during the attacks on November 15th uh, was uh, the French international soccer team's friendly at uh, Stade Denis. And um, just earlier today, uh, they played England at Wembley, um, at, which is England's national stadium, 90,000. Uh, it has a capacity of, I think, 90,000. It might be 70,000. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but there have been several bomb threats on many stadium. Germany just canceled their friendly against the Netherlands. And we're seeing this in sports because it's a giant uh, conglomeration, of, or a, a conglomeration of people in the singular space. They're very visible targets. So there was a bomb threat it was canceled but the france england uh, match was not and i'm going to play something in our transition that um it's the english fans who are singing the french national anthem uh, during before the start of their match this is important since england and france are huge rivals in you know in just about just about everything (laughs) so this sort of stand with france is important um but first i want to 
shout out to our bloggers who we have a bunch of talented ones. They write about things and stuff. I, you know, news or not music and they're, they're very talented. Um, and uh, if you want to give us a call, our uh, studio phone is 206-543-7675. Please don't shout at me. I don't like being shouted at, but uh, we're going to go on a short break and we'll come right back. We're going to talk a little bit more. Okay. back um so we're going to talk for a brief moment about beirut uh a bombing went off in lebanon and we don't under no circumstances we want to um we want to take away from what happened in beirut but i heard i i did hear in in this sort of week when we were talking about it that the international media went absolutely crazy about what happened in paris and um and didn't react the same way in lebanon it's they're both completely tragic events, both killings, both bombings, and there are bombings after bombings and attacks and attacks in in these disabled regions in Africa and in the Middle East and even in Asia or Chechnya or across the world. Um, the reason the international media reacted so strongly to what happened in Paris is it's it's not the easiest place in the world to get to. Um, Paris has been on high alert since since 2005. Uh, since the metro bombings in 2005, they've they've been on a high terrorism alert for ages, and it it still happened. It was a symbol of Western democracy. It was a symbol of something that's completely untouchable. It's it's the city of light. It's the city of thousands and thousands of lights. So when when something happened, when a bombing happened in Beirut that was equally tragic, that that was not affected as much in the media, people people did um people some people reacted in such a way that um no one was paying attention to beirut no one was paying attention to lebanon uh but the important thing to remember is objectively while in the past the international media haven't at all covered what's going on in these countries these cities uh i remember the nigerian uh, the nigerian kidnapping uh, at the same time as the charlie edbo attacks um you run into these situations where it's it's objectively everything put aside it was an attack on a much larger scale and a much more difficult place to get to that required a lot more planning than what happened in beirut so while our hearts go out to beirut to lebanon and all of the attacks there we we covered Paris. We here in this studio covered Paris and the international media covered Paris because objectively it was it was a much, much stronger assault on on humanity in in sheer terms of numbers, um, and none of this should be permitted. I I am I'm here talking to you about Paris because the international news media framed it in such a way, framed Paris in such a way that people wanted to hear about it. But it's important to know what happens in your world around you. So I urge everyone that's listening to go and talk and learn more about what happened in Lebanon and learns more about what Boko Haram is doing in Nigeria and learns more about the dictatorships in Kazakhstan and the the oppressive regimes in Azerbaijan and, and all of these countries around the world um, that we're willing to give money to 
the Winter Olympics were almost held in Almaty, in Kazakh, the capital of Kazakhstan, where the dictator is um, in power and spent a large amount of money to try to entice the International Olympic Com- Committee to come here. And um, Qatar uh, treats its workers beyond belief and it's foreign workers beyond belief to the point of slavery and fifa still gave the world cup to them and the previous one to russia without any the qatar the 2022 world cup especially egregious since qatar really never in any sane world would have deserved to host the international world cup of soccer so we we cover these things because they are important to us, but because they are objectively of a much larger scale. And with that, we're going to go on to the Democratic debates. All right. <laughs> um, Noah is the VP of the Young Democrats at the University of Washington, so he he's especially well read on the topic. But um, last week, or just a couple days ago, the uh, Democratic debates right after Paris, so November 16th, I think? Uh, 14th. Four- 14th? Yep. Okay. So on November 14th, the... Um, the Democratic debates, they lost a few candidates, didn't they? Yes, they did. Uh, Lincoln Chafee and Jim Webb, the nobodies of the race, dropped out. Yeah. And actually, just uh, it looks like four minutes ago, on the other side of the aisle, uh, Governor Bobby Jindal has dropped out of the Republican race. So there's some news for you. There we go. Um, so <laughs> so we lost Jim Webb and what? And uh, Lincoln Chafee. That Lincoln was right. Chafee. Now, uh, there's still that representative, uh, that, that Harvard professor or... Uh, there's still that Harvard professor running for the Democratic rebates. Actually, Lawrence Lessig, uh, the yeah, the Harvard professor who is running on a single issue um, candidacy of campaign finance reform, um, he did drop out. Um, I just don't think that got any coverage, so I don't think you can be blamed for not knowing that. Yeah. Uh, so this is, that was that was kind of my funny moment of the Democratic campaign. Lawrence Lessig ran on campaign reform and promised that if he won, he would fix campaign reform and then resign, giving control to the president or yeah. the vice president, the vice president at that president, given moment. Exactly. Um, but I thought that was, and he was never invited to any of the debates, despite holding a point seven percent. He had the uh, he passed the threshold, but for whatever reason, the DNC just shut him out and never really seemed to comment on it. And well, I can understand the strategic reasons they would want to do that. Uh, I think it's kind of too bad because he was trying to shine light on a very, very important issue. Yeah. Um, but for for reference, we have on the Democratic side, we have Hillary Clinton, uh, the wife of former President Bill Clinton and Senator of New York and Secretary of State. We have um, Bernie Sanders, Bernard Sanders, probably, <laughs> um, and who who's been a senator for Vermont for more longer than I've probably been alive and uh, the mayor of Burlington in Vermont. And he's been fairly prominent in winning these elections in Vermont very, fairly frequently um, with fairly large numbers, I suppose is the right term. And we have Bill O'Malley who Martin O'Malley, Martin O'Malley yeah. I'm sorry, <laughs> alliteration there, um, who has done, he was, was he not the mayor of Baltimore? Or not? He was the mayor of Baltimore and then the uh, governor of Maryland. So, so where are we sitting, seeing this debate? Uh, where are we seeing this democratic primary going? Because until the debate, we, we, uh, we, in Iowa and in New Hampshire, which I'm very excited about, because uh, Bernie Sanders has actually, against all odds, come within you know striking distance. Of, he's become within striking distance of becoming a serious candidate next to Hillary Clinton, which none of us expected. No. Yeah. So this this f- fabulously over left individual he he's he's as he's as liberal as they're going to get in recent times. Um, he's not Ike Eisenhower, but he he's he's getting there. Um, he's he's advocating for free education or free secondary or post-secondary education. So uh, university education and above um, he's advocating for free healthcare and social security uh, increase in social security. And this will obviously raise uh, taxes uh, he's running against and he's drawn huge crowds. If you don't know who Bernie Sanders is, please, please look him up. He's, he's a fascinating individual, um, but uh, he's running against the, the democratic elite, the, the longstanding um, people in the democratic party that support Hillary Clinton. Now, mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton has been fighting off quite a bit of criticism lately, yes? Yeah, um, you know, coming into the presidential campaign, right as she was gearing up to launch, we had the email scandal break, right, where she had, where she, it was revealed that she had been using a uh, kind of separate email for her um, State Department communications while she was the Secretary of State. That was an email housed at um, the kind of Clinton family home out in New York, uh, by my understanding, um, which you know, it played into the image of Hillary Clinton as an elite, as 
corrupt, as scandalous, as shady um, that the Republicans have been playing up since Bill Clinton was elected president uh, back in 1992. And, and that, you know, appeared to be potentially something that could bring down her candidacy. And that's what sparked, um, you know, things like the rumors about Joe Biden running and him really poisoning himself to jump into the race. I think that she really did overcome uh, a lot of those um, controversies that have been surrounding her recently, um, the week of the first Democratic debate. When Bernie Sanders said uh, that the American people are sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails, uh, it really, to my surprise a little bit, did seem to calm the press and get them to stop talking about her emails. And then just a few days later, uh, she sat through that 11-hour um, grueling hearing in Congress where the you know, Republican, the Republicans had set up that Benghazi committee essentially as a partisan, um, you know, uh, political uh, tool. Um, and she sat through an 11 hour hearing and did a great job and the Republicans were not able to, you know, get her to slip up. And I think she's alleviated a lot of Democrats, uh, myself included concerns that something was going to bring her down, that it was either going to be before we nominate her or after we nominate her. So so uh, a lot of the Democrats in, um, that, uh, for reference, I'm I'm an independent. I will vote for either side of the party if I think they're the best candidate. Um, and in this case, I'm, well, I'm, um, for, for a lot of Democrats, uh, Hillary sort of, uh, we, we've been, uh, it, it's been a worry that um, she, she's going to bring herself down. But the point is right now, we, we're looking more or less at her issues. Like we, we understand she's part of the Democratic elite and that she's sort of, um, she's, she's sort of dominated politics for the last decade or so. She ran against Obama and lost, um, in 2008 in the last Democratic primary. Um, and we're seeing a lot of similarities in between the campaign of Bernie Sanders and, uh, Obama's campaign, large populist crowds shouting woo. Um, but it's, it, he, he's, he's very, he's, very charismatic and he's bringing attention and that's why he, what i gathered that's why he sort of moved, shifted attention from uh, hillary clinton's emails um he's bringing a lot of attention to hillary clinton's issues like her actual campaign issues like her or her interventionist, interventionist policy in uh, the middle east or or even we can go into campaign finance what do you think about her campaign financing for example uh well you know i i believe her when she says that as president she would work to overturn the citizens united decision um i believe her because i think that really does hurt uh pretty much all democrats because republicans have the help of you know groups like the oil industry and the insurance industry which have massive lobbying arms um although within the party yes it does benefit her um but i also just believe her because while she does sometimes come off as scripted and calculating and you know the political elite you know, I still believe she's a Democrat at heart and that she knows that the right thing for the country would be to try to kind of reclaim our democracy by overturning Citizens United and trying to get so much of this big money out of politics. But she's, like she said in that uh, first debate, she's a Democrat who likes to get things done. She's a pragmatic progressive. And she understands that it would be very, very, very difficult to win the presidency, um, you know, you can talk about the nomination, but to go up against the Republican without a super PAC, um, you know, most of the the political elite, the insiders, the people who really think they know what's going on, would say that that's you know just a suicide mission. Uh, we're also when we dig through her sort of campaign financing, we we found that um, or w most people can see that her largest donors seem to be Wall Street banks, and one of Bernie Sanders's biggest accusations is. Wall Street banks, how they take money out of the system, how they make the average man poorer, but the richest richer. Uh, is, do you think there's any sort of like interest for Hillary Clinton because she's being so heavily financed by these uh, giant banks to sort of work with them and make it easier for them to make even more money? Well, I definitely think that, uh, you know, campaign contributions uh, benefit you, right? I definitely think that when you give someone uh, a few thousand dollars into a super PAC that, you know, you buy some... Uh, you know, some, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. You know, you, you buy some influence. Uh, and I think that Bernie Sanders is a really, a really good argument there. And a lot of Democrats are concerned about that, about the fact that Hillary Clinton, not just now, but throughout her career has been pretty close to the banks and pretty close to wall street, which at this point is, yeah, it really may be the biggest, you know, boogeyman for the liberal base. Um, but again, I think that there are also those Democrats who understand that 
that she's the candidate who who would likely win. Um, that she uh, that you need a super PAC to succeed in a general election. Um, that uh, and that even though she might not be getting her money from the best sources, uh, she still you know that's going to help her win. And when she gets into office, uh, I think we have to Democrats are going to put their faith in her that um, that she will follow through on her campaign promises and on democratic principles and try to rein in Wall Street a little bit more. But I certainly do think that, you know, I'm an undecided Democrat still. And one of the biggest factors for me that, you know, makes me not want to vote for Hillary Clinton is that I believe that she is, you know, too close to Wall Street. It's definitely something that is hurting her. Yeah. Um, oh, we also have sort of issues with this uh, Medicare and Social Security, especially on the Republican side. They want to sort of remove Social Security and lower taxes. And uh, taxes, we, we talked with uh, Joe, uh, Joe and Max last week about taxes, actually. Taxes are more or less a good thing. It helps us do there's, – there's no way an individual would be able to build a train station or a highway or run an army. It's just we can talk about American individualism all we want from the Republican side at least. But there are certain things that you need uh, – big government for you need this sort of infrastructure there's no individual is going to build this public transit system that sort of fixes for example uh the commute in between portland and vancouver washington when there's there's no money to be made for it or it's too expensive um so so this, this sort of argument that we we don't need to tax and tax money or don't need to increase taxes only a couple decades ago, taxes were much, much, much higher, and we saw the national debt go down, and it was, or it didn't go down; it, it progressed properly with, um, with the GDP. The GDP was rising as much as the national debt was rising. Everyone, everything was peachy, but um, we're we're sort of seeing an increased amount of military spending. Do you think Hillary Clinton is going to spend more in the military, invest more into military infrastructure, or work maybe a diplomatic position with uh, state making in the Middle East? You know, I think that Hillary Clinton really does subscribe to that smart power belief of foreign policy where we have to find that balance between diplomacy um, and backing that up with military intervention when it's necessary. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's hard to say whether she would really increase military spending or not. I think in large part that depends on uh, what's happening in the rest of the world. You know, no one thought that President Obama was going to be a president who was going to be starting new military engagements but I don't think that anyone is saying, or not many people, uh, think that he's really making mistakes in getting involved, at least to some degree, you know, with the ISIS threat. So I don't think that Hillary Clinton is like a lot of these Republicans who think that we should just dump a bunch of money into the military-industrial complex just as a tool to keep us safer. But I do think that she's someone who, if the right threat arises, um, will use our military force and could get us engaged into a conflict which would lead to us spending you know, significantly more in the military. I'm going to shift to uh, Bernie Sanders and completely ignore Martin O'Malley, um, as most everyone does. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the issues that Bernie Sanders seems to run on is his uh, civic uh, – his domestic policy he has wide he has a very long history in civil rights and domestic policy in all sorts of these issues that are that are completely important to how a domestic state is run especially class mobility um uh, we're talking about investments into public education which has been studied as one of those things that gets people out of the lower class and into the upper class without providing too much difficulty and the united states is one of the worst western country worst um worst developed countries that uh on the genie index the inequality index i'm not sure what it is exactly but i think it's close to 0. 0.4 0. 0.36 it's it's very bad in any case um but is is it possible that Hillary Clinton works with Bernie Sanders or another member of the Democratic elite to sort of work on these domestic uh, civil rights issues and, and go and and regain control of Congress? Well, I think that, you know, we're already seeing that, um, you know, the success of Bernie Sanders campaign, the unexpected success really uh, has pushed Hillary Clinton to the left on a lot of issues. You know, she very well may not have, I believe that she proposed a $12 minimum wage, and she very well, you know, may not have proposed that um, had it not been for Bernie Sanders proposing a $15 minimum wage. I'm sure that she would not have come out against the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, 
this massive trade deal that President Obama is pushing, but that's mostly favored by Republicans and moderate Democrats. I'm sure that she would not have come out against that if it was not for Bernie Sanders, you know, making that a key part of his campaign. Um, she probably would not have come out against the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, so she is definitely being pushed to the left. And, you know, there's other people doing that. She's worked with uh, someone like, you know, Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York City, who was always part of that Clinton world, but was refusing to endorse her. You know, he's seen as a very progressive icon, um, was refusing to endorse her until she took, you know, the progressive stances that he thought the Democratic nominee should take. So she definitely is already being pushed that way. Um, and I, I do think that if she was elected, uh, in order to make sure that she, you know, keeps control of the Democratic caucus in Congress, she would be reaching out to people like Senator Sanders um, and trying to incorporate uh, their, you know, more extreme liberal um, uh, platforms into her own. All right. We're going to take a short break before we bash on Donald Trump for a bit. So uh, I'm going to put what I tried to put last week, but I finally figured out how to put this week. Uh, it's a cover of Thrift Shop. But first, um, we have to let you know that if you want to listen to Rainy Dog on the row, you can work. It works just rainydog.org works just as fine on your computer as it does on your cell phone. So go ahead, listen to it, plug it in, plug your headphones in and listen to it on us on the bus. Um, we also have to say that uh, my UW goes on your phone as well. So uh, UW IT, so you can look at your schedules and your winter quarter will begin on the right hook. Uh, hook. You have to go on my.uw.edu on your mobile device. Um, go to notify UW if you want a class and you desperately need it because that's kind of important um and if you want to study for your finals which you know happens um make sure you go on uw space scout space scout.uw.edu or download the app to your iphone and like us on facebook it's rainy dog radio on facebook or twitter or instagram and like us us too it's stuff things in the news it's also on facebook anyway i'm gonna play this song and then we'll be right back to bashlands from republicans
Hey guys, we're back. That was Broken Bass Ensemble's Thrift Shop. Their new album is coming out soon. It's called Brass Hopper, not Grasshopper, Brass Hopper. Um, so we're going to talk about the Republican national debate and our primary debate and, of course, a little bit about Donald Trump because, God, it's so easy. Um, but first, we're seeing a clear frontrunner showing up right now and not in the polls necessarily. These national polls are a little bit difficult right now because it doesn't measure likely voters. But Marco Rubio seems to be coming to the front of the established primary cam- uh, Republican uh, Republican Party. Um, he's he's beating uh, Jeb Bush in polls, and uh, which is which is you know poor Jeb Jeb three <laughs> or no, it's not Jeb. Bush it's three. Bush three. It's like a Star Wars franchise at this point. Um, but uh, we're we're seeing Marco Rubio, who who was part of the established Republican base, uh, come to the front along with actually a Libertarian Rand Paul, who who's. He's the son of Ron Paul. Now, of obviously, both of these guys are behind Donald Trump and Ben Carson, which is terrifying. God, I can't say how much it's terrifying. Um, ben Carson believes that a Muslim can't be president, and we discussed earlier how Muslims aren't the same as ISIS, um, and doesn't believe believes that Obama is a Muslim, which is untrue. Um, and Donald Trump is a reality show waiting to happen. Um, oh, well, wait, he is it, a reality <laughs> show. It's happened. It, it's happened already. Um, so let, let's talk about this for a second. What are, what are the, what's the most reasonable Republican we can expect to get out of the Republican primary? Well, the most reasonable Republican, I would say, is John Kasich. John Kasich. Uh, governor of Ohio. He's kind of an old-timer, right? He was back in Congress when uh, Congress wasn't so broken. Um, you know, he was a big part of the kind of contract with America when Newt Gingrich, you know, took, you know, huge control of the, of uh, the House of Representatives, and uh, uh, he talks a lot about how he passed, you know, he wrote and passed that uh, the balanced budget um, back during the Clinton years, and he is for sure a moderate Republican, um, but can we expect for him to be nominated for president? Probably not, um, because, precisely because he is a moderate Republican, um, and I think that if you want to talk about someone who you can expect to actually win this thing, uh, Marco Rubio is probably the most reasonable you're going to get. Um, you know, I've been saying since since back when this thing started that Marco Rubio had a real shot of, of coming up and uh, you know he did not he was not as consistently at the top as I expected um, but you know he ran this really kind of strange campaign um, strategy of that he didn't want to climb in the polls he didn't want to become notable until later and so even when you had opportunities for him to seize to rise up and become more of a front runner he would you know try to lay low and he had, you know, a very small staff um, because he didn't want to peak too early. Um, and, you know, you hear that people don't want to peak too early all the time, but that traditionally doesn't mean that you don't, that you, you know, try to prevent yourself from peaking. Um, but it looks like now he is as planned on that rise and it might all peak right around February 1st, right around Iowa. And I, I think that Marco Rubio is going to be the nominee and he is a little more reasonable than a lot of the Republicans we have running right now. Which is solid. I mean, reasonable is all we can expect at this point. Um, but <laughs> um, but we w- w- is it possible that any of, the, any of these Republicans will be moderate enough, or any of these realistically elected Republicans will be moderate enough as to unite Congress, as to make them able to reunite Congress? Because Congress used to not be broken. And one of the hallmarks of our society is that we have a Congress that works, that passes laws, that does things. Is there? Is it possible that one of these Republican candidates, and for that matter, uh, Democratic candidates, can bring Congress together? Is there someone moderate enough that's within a shot of winning? On the Republican side, no. Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Um, you know, I... Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, on the Republicans or on the Democratic side, you know, Hillary Clinton is uh, a fairly moderate candidate. Now, the problem is that while Hillary Clinton's issues are moderate, she's a very, very divisive figure, and a lot of Republicans are not going to want to be seen working with Hillary Clinton. It's going to hurt, you know, Republicans who have pretty red districts. Um, that said. If you forget about the name and you forget about the face and you forget about what it means to be Hillary Clinton, uh, I think that if she were to, you know, if the Clintons were to head back to the White House, they would bring that kind of Clinton style, which is different than how Obama's approached Congress, which is really trying to court Congress, really trying to cultivate, you know, a Congress that will work with you. And so I think that uh, if Hillary Clinton becomes president, it'll be really interesting to see uh, if she's able to, you know, use that um, Clinton strategy of of really reaching out to the other side and reaching across the aisle and, and compromising and, you know, giving things up that maybe aren't so great, but that get other things done. If that's going to take hold or if 
her, you know, divisiveness, if her, if her kind of controversiality uh, on the Republican side of things um, will just lead to more gridlock and, you know, Congress being even more dysfunctional than it is today. I think that's a big question that, you know, will have to be answered if she wins. All right. Um, really quick, who do you think is going to be the VP on either side? Uh, for Hillary Clinton, I'm not sure. I, I, I think she's going to be the nominee, and I think it'll probably be either Julian Castro, young, Hispanic, um, or someone like Tim Kaine, I've heard floated around too, who's the junior senator from Virginia. Um, and I think that Marco Rubio's VP, I think he'll probably go the route of appealing to the independents and the general base electorate and choosing someone like um, choosing someone like John Kasich, who would probably win him Ohio, and he would probably win Florida. And I think as a Democrat that that is just terrifying, a Rubio Kasich ticket. But what I really hope is that he tries to reach out even more to the conservative base and picks an outsider, someone like Carly Fiorina or Ben Carson, which would really make that Rubio ticket very beautiful. All right. Um, that's it for us this week. Next week, I have Tyler Wu, the ASU president, coming in. So that'll be a fun one. We're going to talk about his first few days in office. But um, next er, next is Ben Holman. He's going to bring you all that rap has to do. It's 3.59 p.m. on Tuesday, the 17th. Thank you for listening to us and have a nice rest of your day. Thank you so much. Will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.